we're not just going to say yes to everything, yes to every client, yes to every demand from the market. We should be also creating our own agenda. The idea was that if we invest in public space and in connectivity, then these buildings would be kissed alive again. Hello, and welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and today's special episode features a lecture given by Christian Corman titled City of Permanent Temporality. Corman, founding director of Zeus, Zan Urban Sensible, founded the firm in 2001 with Alma Van Boxel. Their practice works on solicited and unsolicited designs and research studies in the fields of architecture, urbanism, and landscape design. Christian Corman's lecture was originally given on October 3, 2019, as part of the Fall 2019 Lecture Series, presented by Rice Architecture and Rice Design Alliance. Let's dive in! Thank you so much for the kind invitation. Well, it's a great honor also to be in Houston for the first time. Tonight I will talk about some of the works we do, and uh, especially some unsolicited work uh, we're doing and uh, finally going from a big, big scale plan we are working on to almost a, a very one-to-one -one scale, from ideas to action. We're not just going to say yes to everything, yes to every client, yes to every demand from the market. We should be also creating our own agenda, our own fascinations and dare to work with no clients, no budget, and no planning. And that's, uh, well, it's a hard thing to do uh, when you're as a, starting as a young company, but we always believe that that uh, would bring us finally further than just say uh, yes. I will start with a kind of big idea, because climate change is not asking for small interventions and some change of plans. No, we need big ideas, and that's what we're uh, trying to bring on. I was born in the southern part of the Netherlands, which would always flood every year. It was just a normal thing to happen. So this was a kind of second nature, maybe also one of the reasons I started to study landscape architecture, just to understand this phenomenon. Also acknowledging the fact that I'm from the Netherlands, and Netherlands literally means lowlands, because the half of the country is basically below sea level. Most of the GDP is earned far below sea level, like 12 feet on an average. You could definitely say that's becoming even more challenging when sea levels rise and also soil is inclining. And we got the question of a government close to Amsterdam in Almere. It's one of the last acclaimed pieces of land, it's the Flevo polder. This piece of land is 130 hectares to come up with an urban plan for 3,000 homes. Of course, planning for 3,000 homes, it also means that we plan for the coming decades or coming centuries. So we also want this to be a sustainable plan, a permanent plan. There's still a, a dike, which is preventing flooding from this uh, polder, but it would also mean that everybody who would live behind that dike would never really get the kind of feeling living near the water or with the water. So we came up with the idea to use the sand, which is fully available underneath the water, to 
create artificial dunes. And uh, sand's actually the cheapest building material you can imagine. That was like 10 years ago. And, and since then, we've been executing that idea to build like artificial dunes on which finally the 3,000 housing units could live and be. It's called now Almere Dune. There's also trees growing on the beach, and you wonder how that's possible, because it's fresh water, actually. It's an inner sea, a lake, actually, but it's in close relationship with the sea. We won't have any gardens for all the private houses. We can together create a, a massive landscape in which people can actually live and have a well, great time living in a landscape instead of in a kind of suburban area. And the first 200 homes and some high-rises have now been uh, built and the first people are uh, living there. This idea of using sand on a kind of massive scale uh, brought us also further, like if we scale this up to the whole country, then all the low-lying parts we could turn into a kind of dune landscape, like a dune metropolis, in order to survive climate change and sea level rise. Because already soon we'll have uh, too much sea level rise to still keep pumping, and also the soil is inclining. So there's a kind of double challenge uh, here. So whenever we would uh, start to add sand, we are creating a mega dune. And it's not just getting above sea level, it also will keep the fresh water. And that's basically the gold of the future, or already now, is how to get and, and keep fresh water. And dunes have a kind of natural habit to, well, basically catch uh, the rainwater and store that basically in the dunes. And it will take about a month for a drop of rain to go through the dune and uh, come out as kind of uh, purely filtered uh, fresh water. So that's a very interesting fresh water machine you get for free whenever you make a dune. Well, in Holland, we are quite experienced doing this, claiming land. We made those kind of rough calculations. We need about 22 billion cubic meters of sand to get the whole country back on level again. But most importantly, it's also creating kind of storage for 6 billion cubic meters of water. So all of a sudden, we have kind of one of the biggest fresh water industries uh, in the world. So th that could be a kind of positive way of thinking about climate adaptation that it can also bring in new ways of, of dealing with uh, the country. So while this is a kind of a big scale idea, we now are creating an uh, alliance of institutes, of uh, companies, of universities who are willing to start thinking of this idea on a massive scale but using basically the small-scale interventions, as we did in Almere June, which is still small-scale, and then going to a kind of regional adaptation, and finally, hopefully in one generation, we can change the whole country. We can even imagine that uh, once we have this raw material, because basically in Holland we don't have raw material, now we have raw material in the form of sand, and we can start to 3D print houses from them. And uh, ultimately we also have to catch a lot of fresh water along the rivers, because also these uh, tend to get dry uh, every season. It's uh, obviously unsolicited, because nobody's really yet willing to really think about kind of complete transformation of a whole country. But if our grandchildren will have to live in this country, we simply have to. From the Netherlands, we go to the Meadowlands. And Meadowlands are a bit closer. They're uh, next to New York. And as you all 
know better than me, you've faced a lot of superstorms, and this was uh, Sandy. And Sandy caused, of course, an enormous uh, tragedy to uh, lots of people and states and businesses. We were invited to uh, join the Rebuild by Design competition back in 2014, together with MIT. And we worked on a plan for uh, the Netherlands. But first, the interesting thing about the Rebuild by Design, it was not just a competition, well, this is the brief, find a solution and then present it. No, it was basically designing a process in which uh, we had to engage with first understanding the site, but also understanding who, who are the actors in that site. And, and with these actors, trying to come up with the right analysis and then come up with uh, strategies and finally a design. So there was a, a really challenging uh, way of, of seeing a competition. And obviously, well, everybody knew what, what was wrong. There have been built a lot of houses in the floodplains, but then, yeah, it's also not that easy to, to just simply retreat all of a sudden. So when we start to try to understand how this water works, there's basically four sources. It's a sea level rise, it's storm surge, it's high rivers and rainfall. And all these types of water come into play when we have to think about flooding. So it's not as easy to, to build a dam and then the water will be kept out because the water will even be uh, more severe coming from the back or from, from the sky. And that, that's what happened during Sandy, that this event was like mutually coming at the region. And uh, another thing to really understand is how earth uh, systems work, how landscape works, and all the different earth systems in, in the region of Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey, adapting uh, in a different way, like the marshlands, are just soaking up the water while the, the bedrock of Manhattan is just neglecting the water. And the Netherlands are interesting. They're basically a wetland, but have been also misused through water extraction and building a lot of infrastructure. So understanding these landscape and complexities of water was the very beginning. And understanding how all these different types of water came into the region and how they affected the different parts of the region in a, in a different way. So with the help of MIT, we did this kind of really complex modeling of understanding how this flood actually occurred and what it really affected, because this was kind of knowledge which was not out there yet. There were all these data sets which were not connected. And of course, flooding is one of them, but uh, social vulnerability was definitely also something we had to take into account because the Obama initiative was really about spending every dollar in such a way that it not just prevents from flooding and creating a technical solution, but also creating other social and environmental benefits. So understanding how flooding and social vulnerability interact was crucial. Also understanding how Manhattan, uh, for instance, operates is because of having a lot of electricity and uh, as a vital infrastructure in, let's say, outside New York, which basically make New York uh, work as it uh, does. And apparently, uh, lots of these critical infrastructures were in the Meadowlands. And even on top of that, there was uh, our mapping of pollution, and it was quite a difficult understanding of what, what this pollution was. But even this kind of Agent Orange of the Vietnam War was stored in the Meadowlands, but uh, during Sandy, it was spilled over, and even uh, we heard in stories that some of the playgrounds were lighting up at night because of the 
high toxic uh, values uh, there. So pollution is definitely, in, in terms of our environmental justice, uh, something to take into account when we talk about flooding. So all these things we met together uh, formed a kind of hazard sandwich. It's it basically meant if you eat that sandwich, you're dead. That very, very critical and uh, harsh reality we found during this mapping led us to well, no other conclusion that if we would spend our money on the Meadowlands, then we would have kind of multiple benefits of uh, that the dollars being spent on uh, on this uh, flooding. And then we had to yeah, understand, well, okay, what are all the conflicting interests? It's, of course, flooding, but it's also an, um, the logistic change are, are being upscaled. There's uh, a lot of residential pressure. So how to deal with all these competing interests. It's not just uh, fixing uh, one element. And especially the Netherlands is interesting because it, it's being completely occupied as a kind of industrial site and, and neglecting uh, it as a natural uh, resource. The other complexity here uh, was that there's always politics. And especially here, Chris Christie and Sean Donovan uh, were also part of the endeavor uh, to, to think of kind of political systems and policies to change the way uh, the region dealt with flooding. During the competition, we had to go through all these political layers from the state to the counties to the uh, cities, and also uh, especially talking with, let's say, the bottom of, of the politics, with all the activists, all the community boards, because finally they, they are the ones being affected. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, we are also doing these uh, charrettes with them and slowly moving in kind of common ground of understanding the problem and, and going to solutions. And so we went to all these different villages to, to talk about well, how close are you to the water and how do you experience uh, the flooding. All of a sudden, during Sandy, everybody was again aware, oh, we're actually in the floodplain. So, how to secure basically these assets there, uh, partly building dikes around them, so secure some of these critical infrastructures and valuable uh, real estate. But at the same time, we, we should also think of a kind of business model where in America, and especially in Jersey, which cannot just be governmental money which is spent on this measure. So we have to think about a business model to change uh, basically the whole apparatus of this region. Well, this is what typically uh, Dutch people do whenever they uh, tackle a problem. They're going to build dikes. Uh, we heard even our ancestors, like uh, a few centuries ago, have tried to build dikes here, but the peat layer underneath is so weak. Uh, some of these dikes just disappeared whenever they executed them. However, we have well, did more research to understand where we could make dikes and where not. And the other thing is that there's kind of a natural way of wetlands dealing with uh, flooding. So by soil accretion, they are able to absorb more water and being more acceptive for flooding. Also, when we are investing in, in these kind of measures, we should think of about uh, what kind of landscape are we making or remaking uh, as biodiverse as possible. So with the ecologists, we have looked at all the species of plants and birds and beasts uh, which could emerge there again, which have been disappearing. And then all of a sudden we could conceive this whole area as a kind of new national park, because it has the size of a national park and also could have the biodiversity of a national park. And especially if you see the proximity of Central Park just 
a few miles away, then uh, you can see the advantage of a strategy in, in which we add new value. And especially if we have these kind of new bike lanes going to uh, New York uh, region, then you can imagine that this could actually uh, work, that uh, also the, the shores of Hackensack River are re reoccupied again as beaches, and you can see a fish restaurant on a derelict pond. And actually having fish uh, eaten from the Hackensack River would also be something new, which is currently not possible because of all the pollution. Then if you create this kind of uh, amenity, like a national park in the region, then all of a sudden people from New York are starting to, well, uh, experience and discover this kind of new gem in the region. But the thing they will experience is basically this, because the, the whole border of this national park is basically one big backside uh, made of uh, these big boxes, a lot of trucks. We came up with this idea that, that this band around the new national park would actually be the most valuable band well, in, in, in the whole region. But then we had to come up with a kind of smart model in which both we could invest in the natural resource and in the urban band. Finally, with the developers and the ecological activists, we came up with this idea that we could no longer build a berm in the uh, wetlands. So uh, also we had to well, do uh, acquisition on private land. Of course, developers would not allow uh, us to do so. so we uh, discovered a kind of new zoning law in which we could add multi-story business and mixed use and then uh, compensate for making a berm uh, right there. And that would bring in some money to restore the wetlands. So that was basically the whole thing, a uh, kind of toolkit of how to uh, come up with um, a strategy which would, would both benefit the natural park, but also the communities uh, around it. And that's how this kind of new well, dream for the Netherlands emerged from a, like a wetland, which was completely uh, damaged by uh, the flooding and uh, a new community emerging. And so this was a grand scale master plan. We uh, then brought down to three pilot projects because for the funding, it was necessary to come up with something which was to be executed for 150 million. That was kind of the budget. So we were awarded as one of the six teams, and now we are three years ahead of uh, executing the first pilot. We'll go from, from the Netherlands a bit uh, to uh, New York, uh, also changing topic a bit, because uh, one of the topics we are really concerned with is, is climate change and dealing with this. The other one uh, deals with uh, all kinds of equality issues in the city. Basically, since uh, we were in New York in 2011, researching gentrification. We've been doing the gentrification lab ever since in New York. And well, everybody is aware that these kind of high rents are radically changing the whole fabric of, of New York. And we were invited uh, by the storefront of uh, architecture to design a new souvenir, which is a, a bit of an awkward question, obviously. But it also led us to think about what are our souvenirs and what, what do souvenirs want to tell us? Uh, how do they represent a city? There's not just a few souvenirs, there's actually 410 souvenirs of New York. They are mostly uh, built in, uh, made in China uh, with uh, 3D printers and then shipped to uh, New York and then again flying back to China again when they take them. 
so we try to map out all these souvenirs and to understand where are they located, is, uh, particularly around Midtown and Lower Manhattan. And also understanding which periods are they referring to, mostly the Roaring Thirties. And also we um, discovered that most of these buildings are actually capitalist office buildings and uh, expensive hotels, and especially the ones which are now recently being made into a souvenir are maybe sometimes not even executed yet. So they are used as a marketing tool in order to promote uh, the kind of real estate. At the same time, uh, when we discovered like how this is kind of a very narrow representation of New York, New York we also discovered that more than half of the inhabitants are rent burden, uh, meaning that they will spend more than uh, half of their um, income on rent. And at the same time, uh, while this occurred uh, in the last decades, also the amount of homeless people have uh, dramatically uh, increased to 60,000 people. And, and we are starting to get interested in, in how that part of the story of New York has never been represented as such. So with a photographer and also with the acceptance of the people we photographed, we try to understand, look, who are they and, and give them a kind of voice or at least an image. But still, uh, then all these pictures and uh, what, what do they mean? How can we actually make that more manifest? And well, we actually uh, chose to come up with a, a new souvenir, a new idea for a building. Uh, in New York to house all the homeless. Uh, this is a building for 60,000 uh, homeless people. It's 400 meters high. It's basically the, one of these uh, slim towers is as big as the Park Avenue Tower of Vignoli. Uh, and then it is uh, 280 by 280 uh, meters. It's like a few city blocks. The reason we want to do this is in, in order to grasp the scale of homelessness in New York and also to give it a kind of space and a, well, a manifestation. And this kind of way of, of representing and, and kind of hidden um, idea or a hidden analysis, we, we see also a role for architecture to visualize and to manifest these kind of uh, latent and in sometimes invisible uh, issues uh, in the city. The design we made for this kind of house of the homeless is uh, not just uh, stacking apartments, we also uh, created uh, 155 collective spaces in the building. And obviously this is a kind of utopia which will never be built, but it was important for us at least to put it in the exhibition. And on the day of the opening of the exhibition, homeless uh, lay in front of the exhibition, which was ironic enough. Mayor de Blasio uh, was supporting this uh, show because he was looking for three new souvenirs uh, for his uh, city and we were happy that we uh, finally were picked as one of the new souvenirs and this thing is now on his desk. So hopefully this at least makes it a bit more manifest that the, the kind of homelessness in New York is not something we can just neglect anymore. From this story of New York uh, talking about urban transformation and urban issues, uh, we'll now go to Rotterdam uh, and that's basically a story of our lives as we have been living and working in the city of Rotterdam for the last 18 years. When we came to Rotterdam in uh, early 2000, uh, all the buildings were empty. This whole process, which I'm going to tell about right now, took 18 years and we made a book out of it. And it, it were basically four episodes. 
It started with a paper period where we just produced kind of paper writings and visuals, and uh, then we came into action. Then there was a fall, and uh, the last chapter is really about the future we imagined uh, after experiencing all of these uh, stages. In the 30s, on the same place, uh, it used to be a lively district, and we tried to understand what, what went wrong. And understanding this place was only possible if you would acknowledge that there was a kind of severe bombing and there was nothing left of the uh, urban fabric anymore, except for the railway station and the railway tracks from Amsterdam to Paris. And they could have rebuilt the whole urban tissue again, but they uh, didn't. They had a plan in place which was based on the American city meets uh, Paris, so kind of boulevard, but then with a, for a lot of cars. That plan was already uh, laying on the table, and they were having a chance. They saw a window of opportunity to execute this plan. And that led to like grand-scale developments. The Shell headquarters and Texaco and the Mercedes-Benz dealer moved into the city center, but we also still kept a reindeer camp. So that's uh, Rotterdam at its best contrast. After just two or three decades, these same buildings which were executed as um, prestigious office boulevard became empty. This was already before uh, the crisis, so there was something really fundamentally wrong of having these buildings in the middle of the city being empty. Meanwhile, people of well, the community, design community and the developers community start planning for more, and especially on top of our building. So we try to understand what, what's happening, how can we make all these plans uh, without uh, looking at kind of the real demand. Uh, we had this simple theory, actually, uh, that this whole model, uh, which we call instant urbanism, we th thought it was outdated, where uh, you would demolish a whole block or a neighborhood, and then after 20 years, there's finally this kind of dream uh, which basically nobody was waiting for anymore. So we opposed that with a model we call the city of permanent temporality, in which we used temporalities, small-scale interventions, but also all kinds of temporal occupations of buildings as a kind of evolutionary model of growing a city. Ultimately, it can also end up in a kind of dense neighborhood, but maintaining all the values which are then uh, created uh, in the meantime, and also keeping some of the traditional uh, urban fabric alive. Our whole office went down and really went into action and basically pulled off all the material we didn't need anymore. And then in two weeks' time, we had our own uh, little gallery opened up uh, on the corner. And it was literally the cornerstone of the whole development we uh, therefore ignited. And this led basically to uh, scaling up this idea, like if, if we can do this to a corner, we can maybe also do this to a whole building. And our proposition to uh, the city was, okay, so all these ideas you put in these documents, uh, green roofs and a mix of functions and lively plinths, and we can actually test and we can maybe prototype them in a, in a real one-to-one -one scale. So this was uh, the idea of building kind of a prototype, a test site, for these ambitions. And we got the opportunity to take over the building for four to five years, but we had to lease the whole building. So we set up a small development company, and this was our business case to uh, rent out studios and therefore also being able to 
have some space for free in order to program interesting parties. So as real estate agents, we also went into the city and hung these posters everywhere. A very simple question, like, are you looking for space? Uh, there were a lot of people actually looking for space. Uh, we turned our gallery into uh, an information center and we had beautiful model, always uh, helpful. And after three months, we had uh, a pile of contracts, uh, 80 companies who wanted to rent in the building and uh, we had a business case and the same alderman and the developer who were uh, in favor of demolishing the whole building were happily opening uh, the Schieblock Urban Laboratory. And there was uh, the very beginning of a kind of small revolution taking place, going from kind of demolition model, which Rotterdam always used, into kind of transformation model. And uh, with a short uh, renovation, we uh, were able to uh, open up the building. And this was the new address uh, for 80 companies. And uh, that also uh, made possible we were doing more uh, public programs. And all of a sudden, there were people on the street again. And that was our big, well, achievement uh, at that moment to, to finally have on this kind of infrastructure, have people gathering again. That led us to a kind of idea of doen denken. It's, it's a, a bit of Dutch translated, like doing and thinking, but then doing and thinking at the same time. Not first thinking and then doing, or first doing and thinking, but using doing and thinking in a kind of iterative process. And that's as a kind of uh, architectural instrument we thought, well, if we can use that on a small scale, why don't we do this on a big scale? Because normally urban planning is this kind of exercise doing a drawing and then 30 years later you have a, an executed plan, but we can maybe speed that up just like software development. And luckily we were appointed uh, being curators of the International Architectural Biennial in Rotterdam and they asked us to do a show on what the, all the things we were doing at that moment. But we didn't think that the museum and the white cube was the perfect way to represent what we were doing, so we uh, set up a, a test site alliance. We declared the whole area in which we were operating as the museum, as the exhibition. And um, we grouped a lot of parties around us to start up an alternative planning process for the area. And the simple idea was actually to do this kind of master planning on the one to 500 or uh, 200 scale, but at the same time do the one-to-one -one and not wait until we drew up the whole plan, but uh, already executing some of these initial ideas. And that was the concept for the test site one-to-one -one model. This is the iterative process of planning and testing and adapting and planning and testing and adapting. Finally, where the ambitions and the dreams are colliding with kind of reality. We were looking for all these opportunities to make different projects. And one of the key projects, I would say, uh, of the whole test site was the beer garden. That was basically uh, based on this first piece of furniture discovery that, that actually worked with sun, beer, and a, and a piece of furniture. We scaled that up to an idea of a beer garden. And that idea of the beer garden has now is now in its uh, sixth successive year, and it has ever since been on the hot list of the New York Times and uh, travel guides. Yeah, it, it's actually uh, a way to combine infrastructure with 
making a place more attractive. Uh, there's some investments being done on uh, buildings uh, adjacent and turning this kind of complete backside into a front side. Uh, also on top of the building we had a vacant roof and we turned it into uh, one of the first productive uh, roofs in Europe. And we have uh, with 15 volunteers we are uh, yeah, managing this roof ever since and we have a few restaurants in the area who are coming up with their menus and say oh, I need this herbs and these uh, potatoes and that's what we plant on the roof and so we have our demand already arranged and uh, it's grown really well although it's one of the dirtiest uh, places in the region one with uh, the emissions uh, of the traffic but even the bees have a great time uh, on the roof the idea was that if we invest in public space and in connectivity then these buildings would be kissed alive again. Well, that, that also uh, happened finally. So in uh, 2015, the, the buildings have been bought by another investor and he's now taking up uh, these buildings as uh, kind of new mixed-use uh, buildings. Um, so what we, what we learned here is that there's no opposition anymore between permanence and temporality. It's actually in two sides of the medal which uh, would help well, and, and sustain each other. So it's no longer uh, you know, thinking about instant urbanism, but really thinking about this kind of evolutionary planning. And if we look back at what is this kind of master planning then about, it's really about programming different projects which work as a kind of ecosystem of projects in various stages and uh, without being dependent on the other project. So that keeps basically the uh, intervention alive and uh, being able to constantly change perspective. Thank you very much for your attention. For information on the spring lecture series at Rice Architecture, please visit arch.rice.edu. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platform to keep up with new releases. This show would not be possible without the work of Siobhan Finley, Jessica LaBarbera, Tapudzwa Tafuma, Carrie Lee, and Shauna Forney. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and this has been Tete a Tete.